Welcome to the Rags to Riches show with myself, Terry Blackburn. These podcasts are designed to motivate, educate, and to inspire you to take huge action in your life, to change your life from this moment on. I interview inspiring guests with amazing stories that you can hopefully learn from, relate to, and spur you on to achieve big things. If you want to follow my personal journey and all the different things that we do, please follow me on Instagram, which is Terry underscore Blackburn underscore property. Or on YouTube, my page is Terry Blackburn property. Me, myself, I've been from rags to riches, had nothing. Now I've built multiple businesses earning over millions of pounds. I have a multi-million pounds portfolio of property up in the northeast of England. I am by no means done yet. So please get in touch if you love the show. If you have any feedback for me, I'd really appreciate that. And I'm happy to help as many people as I possibly can. That's what this show is all about. So enjoy the episode. Take care, have a fantastic day, and don't just take notes, take action. Hi, and welcome to the Rags to Richie show with myself, Terry Blackburn. Now, today's guest is a guy called Arsh Alahi, very experienced property investor, been in property pretty much his whole life, but he's been investing for around about 21 years at the moment. Loads of HMOs, big portfolio across the West Midlands, in the region of 1,100 tenants, There's a hell of a lot of deal sourcing through one of his companies, which he'll talk about in the region of 500 deals per year. So it'll be a great episode. Um, He's got plenty of knowledge to share with us, and I'm sure there'll be some gems in this episode. So welcome to the show, Osh. Hi, how are you? You okay? I am very good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, you know what, to be fair, let's start this off on the right way. I'm mint, mate. Yeah, is that a Geordie twang, is it? Yeah. That's a Geordie. I'm, try, I'm trying to get the Geordie in there, but yeah, let's just call it. Nah. I've been watching too much Geordie Show, mate. <laughs> well, I've got nothing to do with Geordie Show, just for the record, everybody. <laughs> I've been in but that doesn't mean I've been on Geordie Show. <laughs> no, um, no, thanks, mate. No, I appreciate you coming on, mate. I know you're a busy man. Um, so I think it'll be a good episode. So, what we'd like to talk about, Osh, is um, your career so far, the start, middle, and the current. Any lessons, any key learning points, any highlights throughout that we'll talk about and hopefully inspire some, some of the listeners. So the three parts of your career so far is obviously the start, how you got into property. The middle part is the exciting part, which everyone wants to hear, how it's went from zero tenants to 1,100 tenants, you know, how you deal source and that many deals. And then just the current is what your attention is on right now and looking at and going forward. So would you start, Osh, by just telling us a little bit about how we got into property and how it all started for you? Okay, so I hope you don't mind me mentioning that. Believe it or not, anyone that says that property is easy is a complete lie. Complete lie, because, uh, and I've documented pretty much my whole property life. Uh, Believe it or not, I actually turned it into a book. And the book is titled, very simply, to do with my journey, Boom, Bust, and Back Again. Yeah. So uh, because going to through your theme of the start, the middle, I had some fantastic highs. I've seen some catastrophic lows, oh, wow. you know, to the point of bust. And then I had to re, really reassess and come back to tell the tale. So, um, yeah, so where, where it all started, I'm not going to tell you about, you know, what, what I was eating as a child. What I am going to say is that um, um, when I left university, my father was a engineer and he used to manufacture parts for uh, for earth movers and forklifts so he was a precision engineer and he had an engineering company and what he used to do is that his first passion was always engineering so 
from the profits that he made from the engineering company, he slowly but surely bought some properties. Now, we know them now as HMOs, but back then it was just considered you know, almost like bedsits, squats, whatever you want to call them. So they, they, it wasn't a trendy word. You know, in, to, in 1980, 1990, HMOs only really became popular in circa 2008 plus. So I've been involved in HMOs since 1984 now why can i be so specific it's because i was born in 1980 but from the moment i could walk i've known nothing else but to be a landlord so you know um because i was the shortest one in my family i was the one closest to the 50 pence machine on the floor so every friday evening after i finished school i would go around with my dad and empty those 50p machines now we weren't systemized he used to give me a massive bunch of keys go and open that one and every 50 pence machine had a little padlock so there I was with the keys, et cetera. We never thought about labeling them up. That would have been too easy. <laughs> there I was every every Friday evening, you know, trying. And I, I thought I would have memorized the keys, but I didn't. And, yeah, it took ages. But that became part of my learning as a landlord. Mm-hmm. So when I left uni, you know, fast forward now to uh, the year 2000 when I left university, uh, had two kind of questions as to where I could go in life. I had a bit of a passion for music, so I was quite a good DJ, and I DJed professionally for quite a few years. Uh, DJed in many countries around the world, uh, played for some big brands as well. And I had the option of continue DJing, and or I had the option of helping the family, shall we say, in the property business. And... When I considered it, I thought, well, DJing sounds glamorous, but then how long is that going to last? And is that going uh, to forge a way or a career for me? And I kind of thought not. It was fun, and it was, it was fun. Um, but I decided let's think long-term. Let's think about strategy and a business that I can potentially retire in and live a comfortable life. So I decided to go down the property route. Now, when I started property, my father at this point, he had a handful of a handful of properties, which again, remember, are HMOs. And again, still at this point, they weren't trendy at all. So it was more so the old school landlords that bought properties, converted it to rooms. They didn't have HMO licenses. They didn't have fire alarms. They didn't require any of that back then. There was no HMOs. There wasn't any red tape. The red tape started kicking in around 2005. Uh, so, you know, to create a HMO, there was no Article 4, there's no licensing. It was phenomenal. It was a brilliant time because, you know, there wasn't any Section 21 or Section 8. It's the case, mate, off you go. Uh, and it, it worked really well. Um, so moving on. So when I started looking at my father, uh, year 2000, I started looking at the portfolio. And my dad was very relaxed about who paid and who didn't pay. If someone didn't pay, he kept thinking, yeah, they'll make it up next month, they'll make it up next month. And that next month never came, and people would take advantage of his good nature. So I said to I said to him, just to jump in there, sorry, and is is if you made that a point in your property business to really be on time with that from the lessons learned, or is that did that not really infect you in any way and how you run your business seeing seeing that happen? Uh, in terms of rent collection. Yeah. Everything that we do, I've got philosophy and that runs through my whole property business. I get paid first. Uh, And that's rule number one for me. And it became more apparent for me from 2008 onwards. 
when I nearly went bust. Because between year 2000 and 2008, mm. um, I'll, go through, I'll go through the transition, but 2008, yeah, I really learned a massive lesson. So between the year 2000, I was running his portfolio. And believe it or not, by the time I, I streamed it, um, I made it really almost like automated. Uh, it only took me about an hour a week to manage his portfolio. I thought, okay, what am I going to do with the rest of my time? So I said to him, um, do you mind if, you know, I buy one and perhaps sell it? And, you know, we now call this flipping. It's amazing how these strategies have all come up with trendy names. Let's yeah. just call it, we buy a house and we do it up and we sell it. Uh, and so I bought a house through the traditional method, bought it off an estate agent, tried to add value to it. Add value, another, you know, fancy word. Uh, back then we called lick some paint on it. Yeah, it's cool now, isn't it? Yeah, probably. Yeah, exactly. Cool. We throw some magnolia around. <laughs> and then at the back of that, we then sell it back through an estate agent. Now, when you look at the transition of that, that took approximately, you know, on average, buy, refurb, and sell uh, on average around a year. And I thought, man, this is too slow because it takes, let's face it, it takes about two to three months to buy it. Then by the time you've messed about with build and then refurb, that takes another three months. By the time you put it back on the market, then you've got buy and then you go through that process again that's another three to four five months so that's a year done and one transaction for one year i thought there's got to be better ways there's got to be easier ways to make money mm. so i started to streamline the process as we went along so i said okay we're going to buy a property off an estate agent this time we're going to refurb it instead of putting it through an estate agent this time we're then going to go and sell it through auction this time which means that we're going to get a quicker turnaround on the sale and we did that and that was started to work better but again it was too slow you know the first property took us the best part of the year second one took us approximately you know four or five months so we could do two a year that time and then i thought man this is still too slow is it anywhere that could speed up the whole transaction so i then started to buy in an auction refurb and sell back in an auction so again that then took me 28 days two months, 28 days. So it then started taking me approximately four months, which means that I could now do three deals a year. I thought, okay, this is better. Now, how can I speed it up? And I kept thinking, and this was every step of the way, how can I speed it up? And then I started buying and then sometimes not even refurbing it and sticking it straight back in auction. So I would buy it on the Friday in an auction on the Monday, I'll throw it back in another auction. And that way, I could turn it around in two to three months. So now I could do four deals a year. That mm. so every way, I was looking at different ways that I could cut out part of the process. And then this is where deal sourcing really kicked in for me. Because then I said, you know what? Stuff it. I'm not even buying the property. Now I'm going to get the lead. I'm going to add value. And I'm going to sell it to an investor. And this is where deal packaging, remember, back in 2003, no one knew about deal sources. So, you know, this, I was this, one of the first this, people. This was 2003, sorry, you started doing this. Yeah, so circa yeah, around, no, so between 2000, 2003, that's when I was buying them and go through the agent, then go through the auction yeah. and then all that. And then I started thinking, well, there's got to be better ways around this. Mm -hmm. So I'll put a massive ad out in the back of the paper and, uh, when I say massive, back then it was the size of a credit card, but even then that cost a fortune. You know, that cost a fortune. So I put it in for one night of the week and that was the main property night. 
So it's in the classified section in the newspaper. Newspaper around is called the Express and Star. I wasn't really advertising in there to be in the Express and Star. One of the key things that I picked up quite quickly is that, uh, I hope I don't offend anyone by when I say this, is that the Express and Star has got a sister paper, which I call the old biddy paper. And this, this was called the Chronicle. For those that are listening to this and they know the West Midlands, they know that the Chronicle, only old people read the Chronicle. Yeah. But in order for me to advertise in the Chronicle, I had to be in the Express and Star. Okay. So I thought, yeah, okay, I don't care who comes from the Express and Star. I want to hit the old people. And we put out big, uh, every month, every week, I was in there every week. Uh, I put out different adverts in there. So I did like little testimonials about me helping these old ladies buy a house, you know, giving her some flowers, giving her a little bottle of wine, whatever it may be, a little story about how we helped. And believe it or not, that, that worked phenomenal. For me, testimonial-led advertising is still the best method of advertising. So everyone... On that point, I agree. You know, my main business is a life insurance broker, and you know, we've got it's over 100 brokers work for bespoke across the country and, and we do loads on social media and Facebook and Instagram, but you're right. The best, ad, the best post we ever do is where someone's left us a review. Thanks, Terry, for doing such and such. And the power of that is miles more powerful than come and see us for life insurance. And like it'll apply to property too and deal sourcing too. It's not come and see us for property deals. It's look what we're done for Mr. and Mrs. Jones. I completely agree. Yeah. So we had this lady and I'll always remember this. There's this old lady. She was in a chain with an estate agent. And on the day of exchange, the chain collapsed and she was distraught. So she called us at the back of the paper. I went around that house at three o'clock that afternoon and I resurrected her transaction. Uh, yes, we bought, we bought it below market value and I managed to, you know, so I managed to offer her a price where she could still get through the transaction. And I said, but we're doing this on the basis that we're going to have a bit of press here. I had a photographer come, handed her some flowers, gave her a bottle of wine, her and her family. She was there, proud as punch, smiling. She had her best, yeah, she had her best Sunday outfit on. And it was phenomenal. We put that back out in the paper the next week. Here's Mrs. Jones. Last week, she was about to lose the house of her dreams. Uh, as a result of that, she called us. She found us in this paper. She called us. We came out that afternoon. We made her offer. We managed to keep her transaction on track. And as a result, everyone was happy. She managed to buy. We bought a property that we liked. She bought a property that she liked. She managed to keep her transaction. She didn't lose a load of money because if the, mm -hmm. if the chain collapsed, she would have lost a lot of money. And okay. I swear on my life that our phones were red hot for the next month. Just yeah. off that one. Just putting that on there. Uh, and that was for not. And then instead of then going through a little credit card size ad, I decided to do a full A. The newspapers, they're not, they're not A4, they're not A3, they're in between, I think. Mm. Uh, so new, um, if you think of the tabloid size of like Sunday Times or something, uh, it's just slightly smaller than that. But we we had a whole page. I remember thinking, this is going to do really well. I'm going to lose a load of money. I think it cost two and a half grand for that one page that one night. I thought, let's see how this works. And I couldn't believe it. It was phenomenal. Our phones were ringing constantly. Okay, we saw the story. We really liked what you did. You, we really liked how you helped this lady. You know, we're in a, slim, a similar predicament, a predicament. Can you come and help us? 
So uh, now going forward, back from where we were, the auctions and buying, we now cut out all the auctions because we're now not buying from the auctions. We're now not buying from an estate agent. We're buying direct to vendor. And then we were buying deals ourselves, and then some of them we were keeping, and some of them now we were trading. And instead of putting them through the auctions now, instead of putting them through the estate agents, we actually started to build up a network of investors ourselves. So now I was a fully-fledged deal source, a deal trader, without me actually knowing it. I fell into it, and that's the honest answer. Uh, so I would. Uh, so there's some deals that I didn't want. And so what I would do, I would go and meet the old lady and negotiate. Let's say it's worth 100 grand. I would go and negotiate somewhere within 70 to 75 grand. Uh, off the back of that, I would come out of the house. And back then, there wasn't any emails. So I'd get into my trusty phone. There wasn't any WhatsApps. I would literally, I used to use a bulk SMS system. Yeah. So there's a bulk SMS system where, you know, back in the phones, then you had like groups. So I used to text guys, uh, Wolverhampton, three beds, 70 detached, worth 100. I've agreed 70. I want 10 grand. If you're interested, respond back, text back. And my phone used to go ping, 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 ping. <laughs> And then all of a sudden now, and investors just, said... Just, yeah. for, just for clarity, what, what year was this? So when, this when was, was this? Again, we start, we're going now, we're going through the transition of 2003 to 2005. 2005, so fair play. I mean, as, as you know, I, mean, I imagine you get probably more frustrated than most on, on social media. Every man and his dog tries to be a deal source, I don't know. Um, they've done a course and they think they're a deal source, but, you know, there's a lot of people trying to do it now. Well, I mean, back then, I mean, did you have any real competition back then? Oh, well, you, uh, off, the back of my, uh, off the back of my adverts, I started seeing Tom, Dick and Harry start advertising in the back of the paper. We buy, any, we buy any property or, you know, I set up a company called We Buy Properties Fast. I set up the company back in 2000. I've still got the company. Um, <laughs> and then as a result of, as a result of our marketing campaign, so instead of now, going through 2003 to 2005, once that advert started doing well, I thought, okay, let's open this out to the other regions of the West Midlands. So in the West Midlands, we've got Wolverhampton, Walsall, Samwell, Dudley, West Brom, Telford, Cannock. So there's approximately seven, eight different little regions that have got their own little newspapers. Mm. I decided to do a marketing campaign, you know, whilst we're getting these deals in and I was clearing 10 grand a deal. So just going back, once I came out of that lady's house and I agreed 70 grand with her, I would then put it out on my text message and I'll say, guys, okay, you can have it for 70 grand plus a 10K fee, but you have to pay me my 10K fee and then I will put you and the lady together. Mm. And then I step out the middle. You know, if it falls through, for whatever reason, you get your 10K back. But as far as I'm concerned, you guys are in bed now. And then off the back of that, it was phenomenal, you know, Back then, people were coming and just, they were calling me and saying, Ash, what deals you got? What deals you got? And this is what I liked about property. This is what I love about property. It's not, it's not buying the house and renting it out for £500 a month. That doesn't excite me whatsoever. The fact that I've gone in, I've sealed the deal, I've come out, I've, I've literally typed out the text whilst I sat outside the car, pressed send to all, it's gone. And then all of a sudden... You know, you know what the freakiest thing is? I used to put my own phone number in that group so I could receive my own text just so that I could see how it looked. And I yeah. thought, you know what? To be fair, that's good. <laughs> yeah. uh, I used to... 
Thinking Ten about it now, it? honestly, thinking about it now, I'm not sure if you can see it. It's got go- it's got goosebumps on my arm. <laughs> Still yeah, to this idea. day, you know, there's yeah. no better feeling than coming out of a vendor's house and negotiating it. I wouldn't leave the house until the deal was done. Mm. I went in. So my marketing ploy was very simple. We would hook them in off the advert. Off the advert, then we would then go and view the property. But before we view the property, we pretty much did the deal over the phone. Mm. So there's no point me going there. Let's say that the house is worth 100 grand. You qualify in them, aren't you? Yeah, Yeah, so literally. There's another special word, qualify them. Back then, we used to say, don't waste our time. So, (laughs) and then qualifying is a lovely little posh word there. But but then we used to say, guys, we're going to be within the region of like 70, 75 grand. I said, if you can't afford to sell it to us, there's no point. I don't want to waste your time. You don't want to waste mine. Uh, And everyone was very clear that when we're going out to the house, we're going to be, it's like, you know, now, if you think about the concept now, we buy any car, you put your reg into the website. I should say other websites are available. Uh, but you you stick your reg into that um, that website. They give you a, they give you a quote, don't they? Yeah, yeah. So when you take the car there, the walk around said, oh, we didn't know about that scratch. Oh, we didn't know about that scuff on that alloy. And that three grand now has come down to two and a half. So we did exactly the same. Yeah, we did the same. Yeah. Oh, you did, on the phone, you didn't tell us about that massive crack running down the back of the house. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, everywhere we were chipping away. Uh, and we were traders. You know, I'll be honest, I've got a reputation around the West Midlands of being an aggressive trader. And then, you know, because I wasn't buying the property, I was coming out of the house and texting and making 10 grand at the centre. Literally, we got to a point where we're doing 30 deals a month. Fairly. And this was before emails, before the evolution of the internet. Mm. And this was text message off these Nokia phones and in between I was playing Snake. <laughs> 10 grand a pop as well. Fairly. On average, well, that, they were good properties. On average, yeah. it'd be between four and five. Yeah. But still, but, I mean, back then, obviously, that's probably double or treble, but, you know... And then, you know... My investor yeah, yeah. database back then was a lot of predominantly Asian investors, people that I met through auction auctions yeah. and stuff like that. I used to go to auctions. I used to watch who was buying. And at the end, I'd follow them out of the room and say, guys, you know what? Fair play. You bought that. Are you still buying? Because if so, I'm finding deals. Do you want to, do you want to become part of my buyers list? Mm. And so I was very aggressive with our approach. Very aggressive because let's face it, we need people that buy. The people that go to auctions buy. I was watching who was bidding, and the people that weren't that were bidding that lost out. Said I used to approach them, said guys, okay, you lost out on that one. Are you still looking? Have you still got cash? If so, and again, there wasn't. I didn't have a massive list. It was all up there back then. It was a case, yeah, I've got a deal over in Canuck. I've got a deal over in Warsaw. Um, you you interested? So. You know, it's been a massive evolution, but for me, deal sourcing has been the business that has made me as a person. Mm. Now, going on in the background, whilst we're doing 30 deals a month, the money that we're making off that. So we would buy properties that we liked and we kept. The properties that we didn't like, we traded. That was my philosophy. Keep what we like, sell what we don't. Now, off the back of that, um, my I was in business with my two brothers, and off the back, they said, well, the money that we're making off this, shall we now start developing? So going back to, you know, back to 2003-ish, up until 2008, they started a development company. 
Uh, the development company was we we're buying pieces of land and we were developing into apartments. So we've seen the boom now. We started seeing the boom. We're now about to hit the bust because the development thing is the worst thing I ever did. Really? Worst thing we ever did. Mm. Because think about it, trading, deal sourcing, there was no risk attached to it. When I came out of that lady's house, all I was saying is that, yeah, we'll, 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 we've got you, you know, we're going to buy the property at 70 grand. What's the worst that can happen? I don't sell it to my investors. I then go back and renegotiate. And when you think about it from a logical point of view, when an estate agent comes to your house to value your house, are they guaranteeing that you're going to, they're going to sell your house? No estate agent can guarantee you that. So in the same way, we phrased it. We told the little lady that we just negotiated with that we're not the buyer. And off the back of that, that was when we said to them, what I'll do is I'll find someone that will buy your house. You'll still get your 70 grand. And anything that we make on top of that is deemed our commission. And everyone was very clear on that. Mm. So yeah, when, we walked, when we walked in, they knew that I wasn't the buyer. So they can't call me saying, Ash, where's the contract? Where's the contract? What's happening with the legals? Everyone was very clear from that point of view. Mm. So moving on, uh, moving on. So we started putting the profits that we made from the trading business into a development company. And, you know, for the first few years, it did well. We bought a plot of land and we built 24 apartments on it. Mm. Uh, so we started small. We bought a plot of land and we built two houses. We sold them. We made some money. Off the back of that, we then bought a plot of land and we built 24 apartments on it. And, you know, for me, I thought this, from the outset, I thought this was hard work. Mm. The reason why I think it's hard work, and I'm very clear on this, and if you're doing developments on this, you know, you may sympathise with me, you may think I'm talking absolute nonsense, but this is my opinion. That as a developer, you're the last person to be paid. So when you're... When you're buying a piece of, uh, to do a development, you've got to buy the uh, you've got to buy the piece of land, which means that money's going out. You then got to go off and get planning permission, which means that you're spending money on architects, uh, planning fees, the rest of it. Then you've got to do grand investigation reports. Then you've got to start getting everyone in place uh, so that you can build the goddamn thing. Uh, and then you've got to you, you've got to go through the whole process of the build process. Then you've got to get it all signed off, and then you've got to go through the sell process. Now, if you've got lending on these buildings, every step of the way you're paying out, you're paying out, you're paying out. Now, your profit on that job generally is around 20%, maybe 30%, depending on how well you've bought the land. Which means that your profit in that job is generally the last few units on that site. Now, the people that are buying these, generally, they're not going to buy the crap. They're going to they're gonna buy the best units first and you can't really control which units you're going to hold back. If you're going to hold back the best units, you're going to tarnish your site. So what we found is that buyers were coming in, they buy the ones that they liked, and then we were stuck with the crap. When I say the crap, it's just the last few units. And we found that we were starting then to discount the last few units just to get off site, which means that in actual fact, as a developer, I actually became a motivated seller. And I thought, well, hang on. And then, you know, the profit margins start to dwindle down because everyone wants a bit of a discount. You start to give incentives. The last few, if you're stuck on a site with the last few units, you then start putting carpets, you then start putting coverings. 
and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, hang on, we're actually, well, we're still making money, but it's a long way around about making money. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's a good point and it's a different angle. A lot of people are seeing the other way, aren't they? A lot of people are focusing on development, but I, I actually agree. I certainly haven't done loads of developments. So all you do is you're shelling out cash, you're hemorrhaging, you're hemorrhaging cash um, every month until that development's paid. The first people to be paid are the contractors. Well, no, first people to be paid are the bank, then the contractors, and everyone else. And the last person to be paid is you, the developer. And you're the one that's put your neck out on the line for all these people. And so, is, is, that, is that how you nearly went busting? Was that because of the development? Uh, or was it so of the what it was, so no, that development sold, 24 units sold. We then started, we started, I suppose we started to get cocky. And that's the honest answer. Because uh, my two brothers, they were then starting going out, buying more sites. Yeah, uh, yeah, you get to the point where you think you're almost like you're untouchable. And I don't mind saying that because we're buying sites, we were building them out, we're selling them, and it, it was going well. You know, we got to a point where we had an MD, we had land directors, we had junior land executives, we had a whole sales team, we had our own legal team, we built the whole infrastructure. Uh, and we were, you know, when you think about our outgoings, our outgoings were absolutely horrendous. You know, it felt like the properties that I were trading you know, that money that we're making was literally just paying. It was coming in one end and going out the other. Mm. So it was literally a case of, Arsh, let's do more deals. Let's do more deals. Let's do more deals. And, you know, to be fair, that's what kept the business afloat. Now, anyway, this is where we go. 2007, 2008, we start to see a crash. Now, remember what I said, that the profit margin in the job is around 20 to 30% before you start taking off any deductions. Now, 2007, the market starts to slow down in terms of developments. Every property that we're starting to build and sell, they're being downvalued by 20 to 30% by surveyors. But actually, fact, it meant that we're actually, best case scenario, breaking even, worst case scenario, losing money. And it starts to get to that point where it's actually costing us money to sell them. And at this point, we had a site over here, a site over there. We had money going out over here, money going out over there. And we literally had to close the development arm down. And literally, if you think of how much we lost, we're talking best part of 10 million quid. Yeah. yeah so literally to a point of, and this was not, this was never my plan. I don't mind saying that. If anything, my biggest mistake is you go with your gut. If you think something's not right, you say, you know, and at every point I kept saying, guys, let's not buy any more sites. You know, we've got sites over there that sat empty. That's going through planning. We've got sites here going through appeal. You know, let's concentrate on these sites. Oh, no, no, no. We've got to keep building because as soon as we come off this one, we've then got to go on that one. And if we've not got any sites, what are these guys going to keep doing here? That's all I kept hearing. But the reality is that you don't keep buying sites for, you know, to keep other people in work. You've got to, you've got to control number one. And so... My going back to the point now, uh, so that company ended up closing. We end up losing a shed load of money. So I'll talk about one high and one of probably the best highs for that development company is that we bought a car showroom. Can't remember how much we paid, multi millions it was. It's a couple of million quid, I think, we paid for that site. 
And it, we, we were going to build uh, quite a few executive homes on it, four straight five bedroom homes. And we start, we got planning permission and everything. So we bought the site, we got planning permission. And just as we were about to start work, we get, a, a, and well, this is a point of emails now, 2000, I think there's about 2006. Uh, we get an email from the land guys at Lidl. And they said, we understand that you own this site. Would you be, would you be interested in selling? And we were literally about to put spade into the ground. Uh, and we said, okay, let's, let's see where this goes. It says, well, we're going to, we're about to start building, but what you're proposing. They came back, back and forth within a couple of weeks. They offered us a price to sell it as it is and a completion within four weeks. And we walked away with 1.1 million pounds off that. Profit, that is. Profit. Yeah, fair play. So but that's without doing any of the work, but obviously we yeah. went through the whole planning, but that's 1.1 million pound net after all costs. So if you are looking for sites, you know, one of the strategies that I'll say is that you look for blue, big blue chip companies and you can potentially, that's a sourcing strategy that you can actually work around. Uh, but you get there, you get their specification, you understand what they're after, you then go out looking, but just bear in mind that that does take time. Yeah. But that's a real high of developments real low is that you get paid last real low is that you're hemorrhaging you're losing well you're just paying out everywhere so, so, from, so from from your experience in knowledge obviously you've done quite a lot of development and and investment and stuff but uh, on the on the development side and up until that, that part in your career what are the key lessons that you can share with others to, to try and help other people Key lessons is, you know what, if you've got a real simple, first of all, don't overcomplicate, never overcomplicate Definitely. anything. You know, I, yeah, I had a real simple, I went through a step-by-step process. I bought through estate agents. I sold through estate agents. I bought through auctions, sold through auctions. I then started to streamline it where it was literally a case of negotiate the deal, sell the deal. Don't get financially committed to it. Take the fee out the middle and get paid first. I lost sight of that and then I got dragged into the development company uh, and we lost money. And, and do you do any development now or has it kind of just been... I do, but I'm very, I'm very, very... When I say cautious, I've got to be 100%. When I say 100% certain, I've got to be very clear of our exit. Mm. I've got to be very clear of the exit of the, the product and more important. So... Um, I've got to have the plan B. So I always go there. Is that if they don't sell, can I keep it for my portfolio? Is it something that I want to keep for my portfolio? Will I be able to get my money out? And so I, or I already have all the ducks lined up. So I've already got my, uh, I've already got the mortgage product lined up so that at the end of it, if it doesn't sell, I can refinance and get all my money back out. I've already got the valuations stacked up ready. So everything is there. So I finished, um, we're talking about 2021, built a couple of houses, uh, two four-bedroom houses from ground up. We've actually sold those. But again, uh, because our margin on that was around 45%, I knew that we had a really high chance yeah. of selling, making decent money. If not, I knew I can definitely get all my money back out. Before that, I did a block of six flats. So I am still refurbing. I'm still buying. I'm aggressively still buying you know, um, over the last, I'd say over the last three, four, no, where are we? We're in 2022. Between 2018, 
2017 to now, let's say a five-year period, I must have bought myself uh, best part of 100, 100 properties. 100 properties. Fair play. And, and what, and I'm sort of balancing around a bit in terms of the order of the, of the career, but what's your main strategy right now? Is it HMOs? So my, is it a bit of everything? Or? So I started my career with HMOs. Um, be, oh, well, I started my career as bloody skivvy, if you want to call it like that. Skivvy, that was definitely labor of love, man. That was, yeah, <laughs> um, you've got to do what you're doing at that point, though, mate. Yeah, no, so, so I started off as uh, HMO Skivvy, shall we call me, yeah. and then off the back of that, then, um, yeah, I've, I, you know, between 2000 and 2008, I saw the angle of obviously keep building HMOs. Not many people knew what HMOs were, but, you know, I still had lots of houses that were converted into rooms style. And then we had to go through the red tape of obviously HMO licensing and all everything that that bought uh, going on now. I kind of step away from HMOs slightly. The reason why I do that is because I prefer more self-contained units. I've been in self-contained units for a long time. So when we talk about self-contained units, each room's got its own little kitchenette and en-suites. And the reason why I do that is because predominantly, I think that tenants stay longer when they don't share anything, when they don't share their own kitchen, their own bathroom, when they're not having to share the kitchen or the bathroom. Um, so I could talk to you, I could do a whole episode for you, literally on different types of HMOs that I've experimented with. I've done the all-inclusive model. I've done the partially inclusive model. I've done the fully exclusive model. The things that people are talking about now about council tax banding, I actually did that whole exercise back in, you know, in the early 2000s before I started creating HMOs. So just, it's... What, just, just going back a step on the self-contained thing. So what, what, what would a general property look like? So if you were putting kitchenettes on suites into a room, obviously the room size has got to be bigger. Are you just then taking out the main kitchen, I'm assuming, and just making a house? No, we'd always, we'd, always, uh, we'd always maintain a main kitchen in the building. Main kitchen as well. Yeah, okay. they're remain in the building. And then and you have to do that. And I don't, it's going to shoot me in the foot here, but uh, you have to do that to maintain the planning. Mm. Because uh, okay. going fully self contained, you could fall foul of planning legislation. Mm. Uh, and that's probably a little tip for everyone that's listening. Don't take out the main kitchen, don't take out the main bathroom. Mm. Um, so, by, by kitchen at eight, I'm assuming you just mean a couple of base units, sink. Um, yeah. Are you putting cooker in as well, or are you just having one of these hot plate things on, on the uh, bench? Uh, what, what? Generally, it's a, a plug-in hot plate. Hot plate, okay, cool. Um, that's interesting. Um, and the reason why we do that is because you've got much higher chance of getting commercial valuations than if you if you are literally just you know replacing some fire doors and sticking up some smoke detectors. Yeah. Uh, and you know, again, going back to a point, commercial valuations. I've been in commercial valuations before commercial valuations even became a term. We, you know, again, we, we would work off the rental income. So we would be buying, converting it into HMO and then saying to, going back to our, our, we had a revolving facility. We had revolver, so we created revolving facilities with banks like AIB, RBS, Lloyds. And then literally we'd buy it, convert it, get it operational and go back to Lloyds and say, guys, okay, Here's a house. We bought it for 100 grand. It's now generating 20, 20, 30 grand a year. They would come and value it based on the income and we get all our money back out. We did this before commercial valuation was a term as well. Then, yeah, yeah. Fair play. You're like a trend set that, Osh. 
No, so, I'm not. Because I, I don't, I don't <laughs> come out with these programs. It's just literally, it's literally the way that I see it's grassroots. It, it generally is grassroots. And then, you know, for me now, it's more so about upscaling the stuff. I never wanted to deviate away from what I learned from the early set, which was deal sourcing, deal packaging. You know, these are the trendy words. Let's just call it trading deals. I'm a trader. You know, the Del Boy property, if you want to call me. Yeah. <laughs> literally, literally, we go in and we do exactly the same today. I don't visit anything anymore. I literally negotiate the deal on the phone or I've got a group of people that now negotiate deals on the phone. We get it ready. And instead of now sending, doing the text message to all, I created a platform for it. So I created, so, you know, sl slightly moving forward. So when emails started to evolve, all those people on text message, remember it used to cost me every, everyone I used to text. So now email was free. This was the evolution. It's like, it's like garlic bread. <laughs> so uh, so no, it's an it evolution. So all these people that we had on text message, we now started creating email groups and we would email the properties out. Mm. And again, same, as soon as we sent it out, would someone would come in and say, yeah, Arsh, I want it, I want it, I want it. Mm. Off the back of that now, I've created a whole, literally, mobile, uh, mobile application. And the mobile application is called Mo, uh, the Property Investor app. So literally, it's on the App Store. It's called Property Investor. And we launched that over two years ago. Now, we've got nearly 40,000 buyers on that platform. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's about scaling it. So instead of now, you know, going and emailing people now, it literally, we've, done, we've moved away from email. We've now gone to PropTech. Mm -hmm. And off the back of that now, every time we release a property, it pings you. And then again, we get every property that we release, we've got about 20 to 30 people that want it. So we're now scaling that. And that's how we've got to 500 properties a year. This year, you know, I've pushed the boat out. I said, I've said to my team, I'm only trying to hit 1,000 properties this year. 1,000 properties. Sell 1,000 properties through. Yeah. Yeah. So if, you look at that, yeah if you look at that, that's 40 properties a week. That's, that's a lot. Okay. Is, yeah. 40, is, 20, is it 20 properties a week? A thousand yeah. properties, 50, yeah. 20 properties. Yeah, 20 yeah. yeah. Um, so we're yeah. on average doing between five and 10, you know, last year. So, so why not to, exactly. So we've got, we've got all the systems and everything set up and now it's about scaling that up again. And, you know, my vision, so what my wife asked me over Christmas, she goes, oh, she goes, what is it that you want? She goes, we've already got quite a sustainable income. You know, you're financially free. You know, another trendy word. Um, another trendy word, financially free and all that kind of jazz. Where do you want to be? And I, I said to her, I said, this is going to sound really arrogant, but I want the property investor app to be a household name like Right Move and Supla. Mm. And I said, that's all I want to do. You know, no one's ever done anything like that. No, no. So I want it to be the household name for property investment deals. And I think we've got that at the moment. When I say we've got that, uh, you know, when you look at property tech in terms of applications and the right move Zoopla on the market, uh, I think we sit fourth or fifth in, in the league table. So I think we've done a good start within two years. You yeah, know, yeah. Where, where we're, we're going to be in another five years, God knows. Who knows? Fair play, fair play. And, and, and what's your sort of, I know you mentioned your strategy, you're doing loads of different types of HMOs and things. 
So I, I had a brief conversation before we went live about your strategy about paying your debt off over time. Uh, are, you, are you still doing that? Because I think that's yeah. quite yeah. interesting yeah. angle that I think people want to hear about. Uh, again, back in 2007, when we nearly went bust, the bank literally forced my hand and said, oh, it's okay. You know, we've taken all your cash. You still owe us some money. Mm. Uh, and I thought, okay, shit, where's this leave? I said, we know you've got properties and we know that you've got equity. So we're going to start to look at taking these. And I had to have, believe me, I had to have lots of sleepless nights. I had to have many very dark conversations with uh, receivers, um, administration companies, banks that were literally knocking on the door saying, cough up, cough up. So... I said, to, I said, what we did is that we come up with lots of financial payment plans. And back then, everything was on, you know, this crystal ball. I, I see property investors and even property gurus now still keep saying, oh, yeah, don't worry. Interest only, interest only, interest only. And I said, you know, back then we were on interest only. And when you buy, for those that don't know, when you take out an interest-only mortgage, you're actually only paying the interest. You're not actually paying down any debt. So as far as I'm concerned, now you're gambling on that property being worth more than what your debt level is when you come to dispose or exit. And when we look at that, when we have a look at what's happened in the world over the last two years, Okay, the property market has not taken a beating in terms of values. In actual fact, it's gone up. Yes, I agree with that. However, when you take that property out, when you take that property loan out for 25 years and the average term is 25 years, how can you guarantee that we're not going to go through more pandemics or any other issues? You know, the financial markets go up and down. We go through peaks and troughs every few years. And that's cyclical. You know, we can see that. But in essence, the way that I see it is that you're gambling, that you're hoping that that property is going to be worth more than your debt level when you come to dispose of it. So I wanted to be in a position when um, Lloyds came to me and says, Osh, we don't like the level of debt that you're at. And back then, you know, when the property market crashed, we were probably geared around 90, maybe even 95%. Oh, wow. So we were geared really highly. Yeah. And I said, and they said, guys, that says we're going to start to push for you to sell these or we're going to call you in. And when we talk about call you in, we're going to call you in as in we're going to push you to bankruptcy. Yeah. Sure. I had these chats. Believe me, I had these chats. And there was day after day where I was having a call with AIB. I was having a call with RBS. I was scouring around seeing what are the funding available to get me out of this mess. So I structured... I went back, I sat to him and said, guys, we need to have a conversation. We need to get everyone around a meeting. I said, you know, and I was very clear. I said, you want to put me into liquidation, do it in liquidation, but you're not going to get your money back. And when I say you're not going to get your money back, by the time you've sold your properties and they'll fire sell, you're still going to be owed money, but I've got other solutions. And what we did, we restructured the debt. And instead of it being on interest only, I then structured it. I showed them what the property portfolio was producing and it's producing good cash flow. And I said to them, well, if you restructure the debt where it's now coming down every month on an interest, not an interest only basis, on a capital repayment basis, I think we can get to a point 
where over a period of time, that we will be zero. Yeah, and yeah. this was back in 2007, as we record this we're in 2007, uh, we're in 2022. So with 50, how many years are we in? 15 years? Uh, yeah, 15 years, yeah. So over a period of 15 years, I structured that debt down to a, a, a timeline. And they said, ask what kind of period are we looking at? And I said, I'll tell you what, why don't we structure the debt? And this is, they thought I was flipping back crazy when I mentioned this. I said, let's structure the debt for the 11th of November, 2025. And they said, that's a really random date. I remember my my uh, my my bank relationship manager, a chap called Mike, and Mike was on my side. If I'm honest, Mike said, "Ash, I don't want to call you in," because I don't want to call you in. He goes, "We can structure something. I can keep the credit team happy. We can show proof of concept." He goes, "You've never missed anything. There's no reason for us to call you in if we can bring your borrowing down from 95 percent." And so we structured something with the credit team. So that all my debt is now coming down to the 11th of November, 2025. And it'll all be so gone. 11.59 p.m. and 59 seconds. I've gone from having bank borrowings from the best part of 10 million quid to zero. Why, why that date? Why? Because on the 12th of November at midnight, I turned 45. Yeah, and that's, that's, the day that, that's, the day that I, that's the day that I'm done. So doing as in not buying anymore, or doing as in I don't know. But you know, every, everyone's got to have a dream. Everyone's got to have a goal. And I thought, well, if I can get to 45, which I still think is a reasonable age to be able to retire or just relax, uh, I thought to myself, well, if I set that at 45, what I decide to do when I wake up on my 45th birthday, whether I decide to sell everything, whether I decide to hand it over as inheritance to my daughters, whatever it may be, I've got no noose around my neck. And, you know, from yeah. 2007 up until, you know, right now my gearing is approximately, you know, where most people are still geared up to 75% of the value. I'm geared around 30%. Mm. And is that an all new purchases as well? Yeah, so any, anything that we do, we attach onto that. We're oh, you just got a portfolio charge with one bank across the lot, yeah. yeah? No, I'm uh, not. I'm yeah. not. I'm not running around with a 15 million bloody lenders and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we've got a good. We've got a good structure because let's face it. If I bought something today and then put myself now on another 15 year loan, that you know that goal of the 11th of November is irrelevant mm. because I've now got another yeah. 15 year it's loan. More, yeah. Exactly. So I've said that, that that goal. So I've said to everyone. And not in that, Lloyd's like the fact that I'm still buying properties that, you know, they're very gear, they're very low in their gearing. They know my cash flow position and it works really well. So that thing that nearly took me down under was probably the best decision we ever made. You, you win or you learn, as they say. And, and... Yeah, so and then not in that, more importantly, on the 11th of November, regardless whether my houses are worth 20 grand, or a hundred grand, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because yeah. there's no debt on them. If I decide to sell them all for a pound each, it doesn't matter. Hmm. Have you thought about retirement? Uh, 
a good topic because you know I think at, at different stages of life you you view retirement differently. What 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 do you say that is? Do you, do you think you could ever stop? I know you think you've got options and things, but do you think you will ever stop? You could ever stop? My wife do you, you do come across as the type of person who once this is paid off at forty five, you'll do something else. Yeah, like, yeah. You'll, you'll I mean, for me, what's given me a new lease of life is, like I said, buying a house and renting out for five hundred pounds a month. That doesn't really excite me. Dealing with tenants and dealing with maintenance. Oh my god, that that gives that that drains me. That genuinely drains me. So uh, for me, it's about the challenge of the new the, the new um, ventures that we go into. So like the Property Investor app has been a real good learning curve for me. When I say learning, it's not only just developing the app. For me, it's about understanding the coding. It's understanding the process. So in actual fact, I could code new stuff, but I didn't know how to do that two years ago. Uh, as well as that, I'm also launching another other other platforms that I've had in the back. So part of my portfolio, and uh, sorry, I know this is probably running over to the hour, but part of my portfolio is that a lot of our tenants are on benefits. And the reason why they're uh, on benefits, well, not, not the reason why they're on benefits, but uh, the reason why we take people on benefits is because it's pretty quite a secure income. Now, think of what happened over the last two years, lockdown. For my tenants... It's lockdown every day of the week. Yeah. Yeah. So when I said to the guys, when I sent that message to the guys, guys, you okay, you safe, you well? They said to me, Arsh, don't worry, nothing changed for us. We wake up, we do fuck all, and we we, um, <laughs> we go back to bed. <laughs> yeah. in, in actual fact, yeah, the, the, the good thing for them, they actually got paid more for staying in bed. Yeah, things went up, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, so sorry, sorry for the crudeness yeah. there, but you know, if yeah. you're on benefit, no, no. Like, no, mate, I swear on you, don't worry about that. Yeah, yeah. so okay, so moving forward, uh, one of the things that I developed a few years ago is a platform called DSS Move. So, if you're a person on benefits and you're trying to find a property to rent, it is generally difficult because lots of agents don't want to touch you. Yeah, but I created a platform called DSS Move, and our slogan is yes to DSS. So I'm into prop tech right now and we're creating this platform. And even though we've not done anything with it, we've not even launched it properly yet. We've got over 70,000 people hitting our website every month. We've not even launched it. Fair play, fair play. And so my, my aim for this year is that we're going to launch those uh, fully. Mm. And again, that will be equivalent to Rightmove. And I use, if you notice, I use platforms like Rightmove as almost like my benchmark. Because these are companies that have already proven concept and they've already floated on the stock exchange. Mm. So if you can, if you can follow concept, there's no reason why the two platforms that are created, like Rightmove and uh, sorry, not Rightmove, uh, Property Investor App and DSS Move, can't do exactly the same. Yeah, man, no, I like that. It's fair play, fair play. You, you know, you've had a exciting career and, and done a lot of different things and it's 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 great to hear your story um just a couple of last points just just for, for conscious of time um so you're sourcing this volume of deal deals uh, on a weekly monthly basis uh, i'm sure there's people who source who will be listening to this what's your key tips key advice on deal sourcing no you've had you've already mentioned some key tip number one uh, can I put it bluntly? Definitely, yes. Cut out the crap. Cut out the crap. So I, I, I get lots of people approach me and say, oh, Shaka, I've got this great deal. 
And all they've done is that they've gone off and they've found it on right move and they've sent me a link. And I've got no issue with that. But then what they what they've not done is that they've not done all the they've not done all the homework in the background. So someone sent me a link last week and they found a property, let's say in Birmingham, and they said, Oh, this house can become a HMO. And I said, okay, tell me about Birmingham. What do you know about Birmingham? Oh, yeah, it's got lots of, this house has got lots of rooms. It's in a great location. I said, do you know if that area is Article 4? And he goes, what's Article 4? I said, so first thing that you need to do is understand the legislation. Yeah, Number one, understand the legislation. If you're going to source, and yeah, I get lots of deals get sent to me. We see hundreds of deals every month. People send us stock, and we turn away 80% of it because it is just pure crap pure crap and it's not worth a penny that they're asking for so rule number one do your research do your research and more importantly rule number two if you if you are working with an agent don't lie to them and i'm gonna i'm gonna stick up for estate agents right now because you know we get people come to us and say oh you've got the deal but i've got an investor for it and we see our deal being circulated back to us where the figures are completely off. Really? Completely off. So every week we see a deal that I've put on the app. Someone's then gone on the app, got all the details, now put it out to their investors. And then let's just imagine the finder's fee is five grand. The purchase price was 190 grand. The finder's fee was five grand. It's come back to us where the purchase price is 230 grand and the finder's fee is 10 grand. And it's crazy. So... And there's no exclusivity. And I know they can't deliver that deal because they've not got mandate on that deal. Mm. So you've got to do your research, but more important, yeah. make sure you can deliver on what you can offer. Mm. So That's if you are dealing with estate agents, again, make sure you've got that level of exclusivity or they know what you're doing. Yeah. Because ultimately, you're just wasting your time. You're wasting your time, you're wasting my time, you're wasting your investor's time. And all it takes is one deal. If you put a deal out and you can't deliver on it, you've just lost credibility. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Great point. Um, I think, you know, so a lot of people, have, I've heard them on podcasts, I've heard them on YouTube and whatever, where they say, you know, that they'll put an offer in on a property, they'll say it's in their name, send the, the stage and their proof of funds, and then they'll quickly send it to as many people as they can. When they're, they're misleading the estate agent on the buy saying it's them who's going to buy it. Um, yeah, I've heard it all before. You know, I'm, I'm sure you have a lot more than me. But I think that's good advice. Be transparent, be open, be honest with everybody involved in the process. And um, it can only benefit everyone, right? Exactly. I mean, you know, and you've got to think of that long-term relationship. Working, I've got no issue with people working with estate agents. And it's a, it's a great way to work with them. Because let's face it, if you're chasing a vendor for deals, and direct-to-vendor is good, but you've got to remember that vendor has only got one property. Estate agent may have 20 or 30. So that could, you know, create one great relationship. And you've got, in actual fact, a flood of deals for the next year. But yeah, if yeah. you go around telling them the wrong things, you've lost that, you've lost that relationship, and that's it, that's done. And before you know it, estate agency world is very small. Mm. They all believe it or not, they all talk to each other. Yeah, no, no, love that. I think that's that's good advice. Um for sure. Um thanks, Osh. I really appreciate it. It's been a great episode. Um the show's called the Rags to Riches show. 
And you can be rich in many different ways. You can be rich in time, in monetary terms, in assets, in loads of different things. But what does that term mean to you, uh, being rich? What does that mean to you? To me, um, rich to me now is more so about being able to do what I want, where I want, with who I want. You know, back then, going back to being a developer, I genuinely was a slave to people. I was, I was making money to pay people, and I was the last. Now, all that's out the window. I decide how I work, with when I work, and with who I work. And for me, that is the best thing ever. Love that. I think that's a, a great statement. I think it, I really like the fact that you went from you know, doing high volume of deals yourself to then the big, juicy, shiny penny stuff that everyone shouts about on Instagram. And just being honest enough to say, you know what, like you all has to get paid. You'd rather just do the the smaller deals, but do a huge volume. I think that's a real different message that you, you're saying. And I agree with it. Like, I think it's a, it's a great one. You don't have to go after the big, juicy, shiny penny things. Do you? you don't have to do that just to be a successful developer. You can do, you can do the small deals in volume and, it sounds great doing the big, you know, and people always say, oh, I'm doing a deal that's worth 30 million quid. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. But what's that going to net and how much time is it going to take you to generate that? Exactly, yeah. And more importantly, you know, um, and I look at it from a return on time invested, not only return on capital invested. Mm-hmm. And if I think it's going to take me a year to pull that deal off, I don't think what else could I do in that year and okay, it may. I also look at it from a point of view: how much stress is it going to cause me? Mm. And is it worth the stress? Is it worth the time? More importantly, what's at risk? If I'm having to do a development deal where it's thirty million pounds, how much money am I going to have to put in? If I can, and let's just say that that produces me a million pounds, whatever it may be. If I do, let's say, um, let's say twenty deals where it's going to make me a million pounds. If it's not cost me anything to make that million pounds but it's then going to cost me a lot of money to make that million pounds. I'd rather not put my money in and still make it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, de- definitely. I think the message is great. And it's, you know, it's coming from someone who has been around the block and done it for many years and done pretty much most strategies. So I think hopefully some of the listeners can relate to that and think, you know, are you thinking a bit too big? You know, when just because it's a big deal doesn't mean that it's the right deal and it doesn't mean that it's the most profitable deal. You might be able to make more profit doing four smaller deals in the year opposed to one big one um it's been a great episode Arch. i've re- really really enjoyed it i'm sure the listeners have too if anyone wants to reach out to you if they want to follow your journey follow what you're getting up to your, your app what's the best way to get in touch and reach out okay do you mind if i give a few little plugs here yeah i wasn't ex- i was expecting you to you know, okay, I, no, I, know I normally just Come on. Yeah, I always <laughs> yeah i can but, tell you're in sales you're a good salesman i can tell that so yeah of course you can plug okay. away uh, First of all, got a YouTube channel. Everyone's about, you know, there's 300 odd videos on there and there's, there's no sales on that. It's literally a case of, I'll tell you little bits of my journey along the whole process. So go and check me out. It's on, um, handle is Arshilahi. Like yourself, Terry. I've got a podcast again. I don't really interview people. Uh, it's called The Property Rebel. Okay. And The Property Rebel, I release, a, um, I release a new episode every Tuesday at 6 a.m. And what it is, 15 minutes, literally of, part of the strategy that i've done or something that i've done along the way and hopefully that helps you uh the biggest thing that i should ask is that if you if you can connect with me on social media facebook linkedin instagram twitter uh under the handles of arshilahi 
And then the big one is go and download the app, go and download the Property Investor app. You know, literally, it's going to be completely free for you to do that. Uh, it costs you nothing. And if anything, you just get to see the deals that I've got. Um, and that's pretty much about it. And if you're on benefits, go and check out DSS Me. <laughs> I don't know if there'll be too many people listening on benefits. <laughs> you never know. You never know. Yeah, well, no, you, you, you believe it or not, you're only one way, you're only ever one day away. Well, that's true. You never, ever know. Um, Mate, thank you so, so much. It's been a great episode. Um, really enjoyed it. Have a great rest of your day and thanks for coming on. Brilliant. Good speaking to you. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, mate.